ransomware, more ransomware, and TPM vulnerabilities. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. He is Paul Ducklin. Paul, how do you do today? Snow and sleet, Doug. So it was a cold ride into the studio. I'm using air quotes, not for ride, for studio. It's not really a studio, but it's my studio. Our little secret space at Sophos HQ for recording the podcast. And it's lovely and warm in here, Doug. All right. If anyone's listening, stop by for a tour. Paul will be happy to show you around the place. And I'm so excited for this week in tech history, Paul. This week, on March 6th, 1992, the dormant Michelangelo boot sector virus sprang to life, overriding sectors of its victims' hard disks. Surely, this meant the end of the world for computers everywhere as media tripped over itself to warn people of impending doom. However, according to the 1994 Virus Bulletin Conference Report, and I quote, Paul Ducklin, an energetic and entertaining speaker, firmly believes that in many ways, the effort to educate made by both the corporates and media has missed its target. End quote. Paul, you were there, man. I was, Doug. And ironically, March the 6th was the one day that Michelangelo was not a virus. All other days, it simply spread like wildfire. But on the 6th of March, it went, aha, it's payload day. and on a hard disk, it would go through the first 256 tracks, the first four heads, 17 sectors per track, which was pretty much the lower left-hand corner, if you like, of every page of most hard disks in use at that time. So it would take about an eight and a half megabyte chunk out of your hard disk. It not only zapped a lot of data, it ruined things like the file allocation tables. So you could recover some data, but it was a huge and uncertain effort for every single device that you wanted to try and recover. It's as much work for the second computer as it was for the first, for the third computer as it was for the second, very, very hard to automate. Fortunately, as you say, it was very much overhyped in the media. In fact, my understanding is that the virus was first analysed by the late Roger Reardon, who was a famous Australian antivirus researcher in the 1990s. And he actually came across it in February 1991. Yeah. And he was chatting to a chum of his, I believe, about it. And his chum said, oh, March the 6th, that's my birthday. Did you know it's also Michelangelo's birthday? Because I guess people who are born on March the 6th might just happen to know that. But of course, it was such a trendy and cool name that a year later, when it had had chance to spread, and as you say, often lie dormant, that's when it came back. And it didn't hit millions of computers, as the media seemed to fear, and as uh, the late John McAfee <laughs> liked to say. But that's cold comfort to anyone who was hit, because you pretty much lost everything. Not quite everything, but it was going to cost you a small fortune to get some of it back, probably incompletely, probably unreliably. And the bad thing about it was that because it spread on floppy disks and because it spread in the boot sector and because in those days almost every computer would boot from the floppy drive if there simply happened to be a disk in it and because even otherwise blank diskettes had a boot sector and any code in there would run even if all it led to was non-system disk or disk error replace and try again sort of message, by then it was too late. 
So if you just left a disk in the drive by mistake, then when you powered on next morning, by the time you saw that message, non-system disk or disk error, you thought, oh, pop the floppy out, reboot, boot off the hard drive. By then the virus was already on your hard disk and it would spread to every single floppy that you had. So even if you had the virus and then you removed it, if you didn't go through your entire corporate stash of floppy diskettes, there was going to be a typhoid Mary out there that could reintroduce it at any time. And there's a fascinating story. I'm glad you were there to help clean it up a little bit. And uh, let's clean up a little something else. This uh, trusted platform module, sometimes controversial. What happens when the code required to protect your machine is itself vulnerable, Paul? If you want to understand this whole TPM thing, which sounds like a great idea, right? There's this tiny little daughterboard thing that you plug into a tiny little slot on your motherboard, or maybe it's pre-built in, and it's got one tiny little special coprocessor chip that just does this core cryptographic stuff. Secure boot, digital signatures, strong storage for cryptographic keys. So it's not inherently a bad idea. The problem is that you'd imagine that because it's such a tiny little device and it's just got this core code in, surely it's quite easy to strip it down and make it simple. Uh Well, just the specifications for the trusted platform module, TPM, they have collectively 306 pages, 177 pages, 432 pages, 498 pages, 146 pages, and the big bad boy at the end the part four supporting routines dash code, where the bugs are, 1,009 PDF pages, Doug. Just some light reading. Just some light reading. So there's a lot of work and a lot of place for bugs. And the latest ones, well, there are quite a few that were noted in the latest errata, but two of them actually got CV numbers. There's CV dash 2023 dash 1017 and dash 1018. And unfortunately, they're bugs, vulnerabilities that can be tickled or reached by commands that a normal user space program, like something that a sysadmin or you yourself might run, just in order to ask the TPM to do something securely for you. So you can do things like say, hey, go and get me some random numbers. Go and build me a cryptographic key. Go away and verify this digital signature. And it's nice if that's done in a separate little processor that can't be messed with by the CPU or the operating system. That's a great idea. But the problem is that in that user mode code that says, here's the command I'm presenting to you, unfortunately, unraveling the parameters that are passed in to perform the function that you want, if you booby trap the way those parameters are delivered to the TPM, you can trick it into either reading extra memory, buffer read overflow, or worse, overwriting stuff that belongs to the next guy, as it were. So it's hard to see how these bugs could be exploited for things like code execution on the TPM. But as we've said many times, never say never. But it's certainly clear that when you're dealing with something that, as you said at the start, you need this to make your computer more secure. It's all about cryptographic correctness. The idea of something leaking even two bytes of somebody else's precious secret data that nobody in the world is supposed to know. The idea of a data leakage, let alone a buffer write overflow in a module like that is indeed quite worrying. So that's what you need to patch. And unfortunately, the errata document doesn't say, here are the bugs, here's how you patch them. There's just a description of the bugs and a description of how you should amend your code 
So presumably everyone will do it in their own way, and then those changes will filter back to the central reference implementation. The good news is there's a software-based TPM implementation for people who run virtual machines. Somebody else has already had a look, and they've come up with some fixes, so it's a good place to start. Lovely. All right, well, uh, in the interim, check with your hardware vendors and uh, see if they've got any updates for you. Yes. We will move on to um, the early days of ransomware were rife with extortion, and then uh, things got more complicated with double extortion, and a bunch of people have just been arrested in a double extortion scheme, which is good news. Uh, yes, this is a ransomware gang known as Doppelpaymer. Doppel means double in German, so the idea is it's uh, double whammy. It's where they scramble all your files and they say, we'll sell you the decryption key. And by the way, just in case you think your backups will do, or just in case you're thinking of telling us to get lost and not paying us the money, just be aware that we've also stolen all your files first. So if you don't pay and you can decrypt by yourself and you can save your business, we're going to leak your data. So the good news in this case is that some suspects have been questioned and arrested and many electronic devices have been seized. So even though this is, if you like, cold comfort to people who suffered the attacks back in the day, it does mean at least that law enforcement doesn't just give up when cyber gangs seem to put their heads down. They apparently received as much as $40 million of blackmail payments in the United States alone. And they notoriously went after the university hospital in Dusseldorf in Germany. If there's a low point in ransomware, <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, you know, not that it's good that anybody gets hit. The idea that you actually take out a hospital, particularly a teaching hospital, I guess that's the lowest of the low, isn't it? <laughs> and we have some advice. Just because uh, these suspects have been arrested, it doesn't mean you should dial back your protection. No, in fact, Europol does admit, in their words, according to reports, Doppelpaymer has since rebranded as a ransomware gang called Grief. So the problem is, when you bust some people in the cyber gang, you maybe don't find all the servers. If you seize the servers, you can't necessarily work backwards to the individuals. It makes a dent, but it doesn't mean that ransomware is over. And on that point, don't fixate on ransomware alone. Indeed, I think that gangs like Doppelpaymer make this abundantly clear, don't they? By the time they come to scramble your files, they've already stolen them. So by the time you actually get the ransomware part, they've already done N other elements of cybercriminality. The breaking in, the looking around, probably opening a couple of back doors so they can get back in later, or sell access on to the next guy and so on. Which dovetails into the next piece of advice. Don't wait for threat alerts to drop into your dashboard. That's perhaps easier said than done, depending on the maturity of the organization, but there is help available. I thought you were going to mention Sophos managed detection response for a moment there, Doug. I was trying not to sell it, but we can, we can help. <laughs> there's, there's some help out there. Let us know. Loosely speaking, the earlier you get there, the earlier you notice, the more proactive your preventative security is the less likely it is that any crooks will be able to get as far as a ransomware attack. And that can only be a good thing. And last but not least, uh, no judgment, but don't pay up if you can possibly avoid it. Yes, I think we're sort of duty bound to say that because paying up funds the next wave of cybercrime big time for sure. And secondly, you may not get what you pay for. Well, 
uh, let's move from one criminal enterprise to another. And uh, this is what happens when uh, a criminal enterprise uses every tool, technique, and procedure in the book. This is from CISA, the US Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And in this case, in Bulletin AA23, that's this year, dash 061A Alpha, they're talking about a gang called Royal Ransomware. Royal with a capital R, Doug. The bad thing about this gang is that their tools, techniques, and procedures seem to be up to and including whatever is necessary for the current attack. They paint with a very broad brush, but they also attack with a very deep shovel, if you know what I mean. That's the bad news. The good news is that there's an awful lot to learn, and if you take it all seriously, you will have very broad brush prevention and protection against not just ransomware attacks, but what you were mentioning in the doppelpaymer segment earlier. Don't just fixate on ransomware. Worry about all the other stuff that leads up to it. Key logging, data stealing, backdoor implantation, password theft. All right, Paul, let's uh, summarize some of the takeaways from the CISA advice, starting with these crooks break in using tried and trusted methods. They do. CISA statistics suggest that this particular gang use good old phishing, which succeeded in two-thirds of the attacks. When that doesn't work, well, they use looking for unpatched stuff. Also, in one-sixth of the cases, they're still able to get in using RDP good old RDP attacks, because they only need one server that you forgot about. And also, by the way, CISA reported that once they're inside, even if they didn't get in using RDP, it seems that they're still finding that lots of companies have a rather more liberal policy about RDP access inside their network. Who needs complicated PowerShell scripts <laughs> where you can just connect to somebody else's computer and check it out on your own screen? Once in, the criminals try to avoid programs that might obviously show up as malware, also known as living off the land. They're not just saying, oh, well, let's use Microsoft SysInternals PSExec program. And let's use this one particular popular PowerShell script. They've got any number of tools to do any number of different things that are quite useful, from tools that find out IP numbers to tools that stop computers from sleeping. All tools that a well-informed sysadmin might very well have and use regularly. And loosely speaking, there's only one bit of pure malware that these crooks bring in. And that's the stuff that does the final scrambling. And by the way, don't forget that if you're a ransomware criminal, you don't even need to bring your own encryption toolkit. You could, if you wanted, use a program like, say, WinZip or 7-Zip that includes a create an archive move the files in, which means delete them once you put them in the archive, and encrypt them with a password. And as long as the crooks are the only people who know the password, they can still offer to sell it back to you. And just to add a little salt to the wound, before scrambling files, the attackers try to complicate your path to recovery. Who knows whether they've created new secret admin accounts, deliberately installed buggy servers, deliberately removed patches so they know a way to get back in next time, left keyloggers lying behind where they'll activate at some future moment and cause your trouble to start all over again. And they're doing that because it's very much to their advantage that when you recover from a ransomware attack, you don't recover completely. 
All right, and we've got some helpful links at the bottom of the article, uh, one which will take you to learn more about Sophos Managed Detection and Response, and another one that uh, leads you to the Active Adversary Playbook, which is a piece put together by our own John Shire. Some takeaways and insights that you can use to um, better bolster your protection. That's like a meta version of that CISA Royal Ransomware report. It's cases where the victim didn't realize that attackers were in their network until it was too late, called in Sophos Rapid Response and said, oh, golly, we think we've been hit by ransomware, but what else went on? And this is what we actually found in real life across a wide range of attacks by a range of often unrelated crooks. So it gives you a very, very broad idea of the range of TTPs, tools, techniques and procedures that you need to be aware of and that you can defend against. Because the good news is that by forcing the crooks to use all these separate techniques so that no one of them triggers a massive alarm all on its own, you do give yourself a fighting chance of spotting them early. If only you A, know where to look, and B, can find the time to do so. Very good. And we do have a reader comment on this article. Naked Security Reader Andy asks, How do the Sophos endpoint protection packages stack up against this type of attack? I've seen firsthand how good the file ransomware protection is, but if it's disabled before the encryption begins, we are relying on tamper protection, I guess, for the most part? Well, I'd hope not. I'd hope that a Sophos protection customer wouldn't just go, well, let's run only the tiny part of the product that's there to protect you as the kind of last chance saloon, what we call CryptoGuard. That is the module that says, hey, somebody or something is trying to scramble a large number of files in a way that might be a genuine program, but just doesn't look right. So even if it's legit, it's probably going to mess things up, but it's almost certainly somebody trying to do you harm. Yeah, CryptoGuard is a, uh, a helmet that you wear as you're flying over the handlebars of your bike. Things have gotten uh, pretty serious if CryptoGuard is kicking into action. Most products, including Sophos's these days, have an element of tamper protection, which tries to go one step further so that even an administrator has to jump through hoops to turn certain parts of the product off. It makes it harder to do at all and harder to automate so that it can be turned off for everybody. But you have to think about it. If cyber crooks get into your network and they truly have sysadmin equivalents on your network, if they've managed to get effectively the same powers that your normal sysadmins have, and that is their true goal, that's what they really want, then given that the sysadmins running a product like Sophos's can configure, deconfigure, set the ambient settings, then if the crooks are sysadmins, it's kind of like they've won already. And that's why you need to find them in advance. So we make it as hard as possible and we provide as many layers of protection as we can, hopefully to try and stop this thing before it even comes in. And just worry about it, Doug. I, I don't want this to sound like a sales spiel, but I, it's just a feature of our software that I rather like. We have what I call an active adversary adversary component. In other words, if we detect behavior on your network that strongly suggests things, for example, that your sysadmins wouldn't quite do or wouldn't quite do that way, active adversary adversary says, you know what, just at the moment, we're going to ramp up protection to higher levels than you'd normally tolerate. And that's a great feature because it means if crooks do get into your network and start trying to do untoward stuff, 
You don't have to wait till you notice and then decide what dial saw we change. Doug, that was rather a long answer to an apparently simple question, but let me just read out what I wrote in my reply to the comment on naked security. Our goal is to be watchful all the time and to intervene as early, as automatically, as safely and as decisively as we can for all sorts of cyber attack, not just ransomware. All right. Well said. Thank you very much, Andy, for sending that in. If you have an interesting story, comment or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Amath, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.